Hello everyone, I'm Robert Cross. Welcome to RNHA News. Tonight we have a special guest with us, Doug Collins, who is running for Senate in Georgia. So, Doug, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what motivated you to run for office, and a little more about you and your achievements, in case some of our audience aren't familiar with you? I'd love to. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, glad to be a part. Uh, I'm a trooper's kid from North Georgia. My daddy was a Georgia State trooper. Um, I was. Uh, he I watched him for 31. He worked for over 31 years. So I learned values of, of duty and, and honesty from my dad. My mom worked with senior adults. Um, I went to college. I graduated with a degree in political science, and I met uh, my wife uh, at the time. Thought I was going to go to, to law school at the time, and didn't. And we ended up uh, going into business. Uh, I've been married for 32 years to Lisa, and we have three kids. I have a 28-year-old, a 24-year-old, and a 21-year-old. My 28-year-old has taught us a lot about life because my daughter has spina bifida. She is uh, she was born uh, paralyzed from the waist down, and so uh, Jordan lives with us. My two boys are finishing up the University of Georgia. I am hopeful that they graduate in December. That would be the best Christmas present that I could ever receive <laughs> is to get them out of school. But uh, they're the reason I actually run. I mentioned them because when I talk about running for office and talk about who I am, it's I run because of, of Jordan Copeland and Cameron because it's the future. And it, they represent the futures of, of people that I represent, whether I represented them in the Georgia House or in Congress or running for Senate. Because we always look back to see what was happening, what did people do at their moment in time. And I want people to look back and say that I was a part of something moving forward for the betterment of the future generations that are coming. Because in the future, they're going to look back and see what we did. So, you know, we got married. I was, uh, we was in business. I worked in a company. We went uh, that did uh, monitoring and, and learning business. I went into the military uh, for a while in the Navy. It was a chaplain. Answered a call to ministry in my life. Uh, and I went and started my master's divinity. And I pastored for 11 years. Uh, and during that time, I joined the Air I got out of the Navy and I joined the Air Force in 2002 as a chaplain. I served in Iraq in 2008 on a, a deployment uh, during the Iraq war, uh, came back in 2000, after I, in 2005, before uh, I had left the church and went to law school, something I thought I was going to be doing earlier. Got my law degree at age, uh, when I started at age 38, and my first year of law school, I was bored, I guess, so I ran for the Georgia House of Representatives, was elected as a state representative in Georgia, uh, then was, got my law degree, started a small practice here in uh, Gainesville, and in 2012, uh, ran for Congress, and I've been in Congress uh, since uh, you know 2013, lastly serving as a ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, and I was on the front lines of the impeachment hearings and on the front lines of all the investigations fighting back against Nadler and Schiff and Pelosi uh, as we have gone forward. And, and as we look at this race, as we look at why I'm running, it's sort of my background and my history is, is I see service as something that we uh, need to have. We need to give that uh, forward. I'm still in the Air Force Reserves right now. I've been in 19 years. In fact, I just did a uh, my active duty, part of my active duty training uh, just recently, I'm a lieutenant colonel. And I just believe that this country is, is worth fighting for. I believe that we have the land of opportunity, that people want to come here, they want to be a part of our country. But I think it's conservative values that actually make that uh, difference. It's conservative values that actually believe in lifting up people. And things that that's affected me as I've gotten into public life is how do we help people. In the State House in Georgia, we have a program called the Hope Scholarship here, which is funded off of our lottery, and it helps. Uh, it pays tuition and, and books and stuff for kids to go to college in the state of Georgia. We've had it for about 30 years. It was going bankrupt uh, in 2011. 
And as part of the uh, governor's four leader team, I actually put together a bill that actually saved the Hope Scholarship Program. So now that it is still going so that uh, kids of, of all backgrounds can go to college and, and uh, get a degree. When I got to Congress, I continued to work on those kind of issues. One of the largest pieces of, uh, that we did was the First Step Act. That was criminal justice reform that the president took on. He's actually running on uh, that platform in his, for his second term. <clears throat> the First Step Act was our bill. We wrote that bill. It took us about three and a half years. But it broke. what it does is just hopes to bring the, break the cycle of criminal justice dependency in which people are in the system and out of the system, and they just keep on a revolving circle. For conservatives, that means that we're not spending our tax dollars well and also, we're not, I think, as concerned as caring about people, but we care about both. So it actually gives us the ability to help people to, they pay for their crimes, but while they're there, we give them the tools and the abilities, whether it be addiction control, mental health issues, job creation, those things, to let them actually get back out and not return, but at the same time, building our economy. So we're spending our tax dollars wisely, but we're also caring for people who are trapped in a system that they can't get out of. Um, the president took that on, Jared Kushner took that on, and, and I was proud to have that signed is making the communities uh, all over our country right now. We've also been very active in intellectual property. We've been actually very uh, involved in uh, copyright and music and other things that have updated our systems, and also data and data privacy. The Cloud Act, which is one of our bills that was passed a couple of years ago, has actually become the standard for how big data uh, houses and law enforcement and others interact through treaties uh, with Britain and other places. They've actually taken our bill in Britain actually made it the standard for how they're looking at doing their treaties. So I believe that it's about fighting back, which everybody can know if they've watched the impeachment hearings, they know that what we did with the uh, judiciary, but it's also about actually getting stuff done. And that's uh, that's what we have been doing, and we're going to continue to do uh, as we make this move, hopefully from the Senate, uh, from the House to the Senate. Let's talk a little more about these privacy bills that you helped get passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In sort of the computer age, you know, you did one for uh, copyright, I remember you mentioning, and then you did another one, for the data cloud bill. Right. They're, I think they'll be very interesting to our listeners, you know, especially because in this day and age, it's very hard to protect, if you're an artist, your work. Yes. How does that affect sort of the, the economy, you know, especially when you have like, let's say, music in the U.S. that's, you know, being sold abroad mm -hmm. under the yeah. table. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, we're, that we've got to work on with the, the every, there's a problem right now that a generation has grown up to believe that if it's on the internet, it's free. That, that if you can put it on the internet or take it, that, that it becomes free. And if you've noticed, you know, from my generation, I go back to going back and buying 99 cent uh, 45s. And if nobody knows what that is, they can go look it up. It's not a gun. It's an actual recording. You know, I come home and play a record on. But now everybody gets their music or they get podcasts, they get news, they get it off of their phone or they get it off their computer. Our laws had not changed to protect uh, not only the piracy of that, but also the how those artists and, and how the songwriters and be, you know, everybody else gets paid in it. I don't know if most people realize that, dude, but songwriters were still being paid based on a hundred-year-old formula when we use player pianos. I mean, that was still that was how old. Congress is slow, but we're not typically that slow. But we never updated it to reflect the digital age. But then on the other side, not only getting fair compensation in a new age, but there's also the protection part that you talked about. And one of the things that we're doing right now is looking at how we can help our uh, uh, online platforms, but our, our, our not only our film and TV industry, our recorders, actually be able to protect their, uh, you know, their copyrights, protect their movies, protect their songs, 
and do so by being able to take rogue sites down that we have seen pop up all across the world. Also, one of the things that we're dealing with right now, and I'm working on a bill, uh, I know the Senate's working on it, we've talked about it, and it will be a streaming bill in which right now we see a lot of things that are, uh, because of you know various programs in which you can live stream events. If you're at a, a pay-per-view event, you're live streaming it and you're charging and going around. Those are things that we need in this new economy. We've got to figure out ways to make sure that that content is protected so that uh, we have that content going forward. Um, and that's really the, the areas that we've looked at is how do we, we give the protection for the copyright owner to be able to exercise their right in this digital marketplace. Let's keep going sort of uh, on with the economy. What is the economy of Georgia like right now in the wake of COVID-19? Actually, the economy in Georgia is is doing well considering. One of the issues that we have right now is, of course, Georgia's number one economy has always been ag, and it's still the agricultural economy of South Georgia, North Georgia. My district that I currently represent in Northeast Georgia is the second largest farm rate because of poultry, uh, livestock. We also have a lot of specialty fruit, you know, uh, apples, peaches, those kind of things. South Georgia, we have the mix from cottons to soybeans to, to others. But then we also have a trade industry that is huge out of the port of Savannah, which is one of the fastest growing ports in the country. Uh, most people don't realize the port in Savannah and the accompanying uh, auto port in, in Brunswick are the furthest inland port on the east coast uh, of the United States. And so in other words, if you're coming from other places, if you come into Savannah, it's closer to the Midwest than it is if you come in in Norfolk or in New York or anywhere else. So it's a huge economy driver for our area for the warehouse space, but also the the uh, export and import business that we have. But where our economy right now has been hit the hardest is in our tourism and our hospitality industries. Those are the two areas. Georgia, Atlanta is particularly has been a huge convention site, a, a huge place for people to come and be a part. And our, our uh, those parties have been hit the hardest. So for us, the economy is coming back. Our state opened up quicker than most states did, which was good. And um, we're seeing, like in my home county, our unemployment rate is back down to 5.9%, still a little higher than where it was before COVID, but people are coming back out. What we've got to do is give the people assurances that they can come out and do what, uh, and be a part of the commerce and open their business back up and be protected from liability, uh, you know, from just, you know, frivolous lawsuits and other things. And I think Georgia's economy is going to come back uh, stronger and quicker than most in the country because we've actually been pushing the envelope a little bit to make sure our, our businesses, our schools, and others get open. What measures are Georgians taking as they reopen their economy? I mean, I know that that's a big thing the last left always says, you know, they're saying, you know, Trump and the Republicans, they don't care about COVID-19. Look how they're pushing forward to reopen there's going to be a spike in COVID-related deaths. Yeah. Well, what's happening is what you're actually seeing here in Georgia, and we had, a, like a lot of folks, after the summer hit and everybody started to get out, um, we did see a rise in number of cases. But what we're actually seeing is less hospitalizations. We're seeing less deaths. We're seeing that we now know how to actually treat many people with the COVID virus. I'll use an example, a local hospital we have here. Uh, everybody early on, if you remember, everybody's worried about ventilators. You know, we got to have all these ventilators. We're going to be concerned about it. We started making them. And what they began to find out was is ventilators typically are not the best way to treat this virus. Giving people oxygen, just normal oxygen, unless they just absolutely had to have a ventilator, was not the best way to go about it. So what we're seeing now is with uh, 
the some of the therapeutic drugs and some of the other things that are coming along along with oxygen, we're seeing people get out of the hospital quicker, and we're not seeing the mortality rates that we saw earlier. So the question becomes is that if over 90% of the people who actually get the COVID virus have very minimal or asymptomatic, then what we got to convince people is is what the left is pushing and what the left is pushing about president because they want to beat him on November 3rd, and that's all they want to do, is they're trying to scare people into getting to the election, being fearful to vote for Joe Biden or somebody else that will uh, just trying to take the president. But what we're seeing in Georgia is people are responsibly wearing masks. They're responsibly doing uh, this things they have. In areas where it's a little bit higher concentration of positives, we're seeing more uh, protections. But in a lot of the other areas where we don't see that, people are being responsible in how they act. But we've got to have real true facts out there instead of it just being this fear factor that we see dominating all the time. I would agree. A lot of people are acting out of fear lately, and they shouldn't. There's a ventilator for every person in the country if they need it. Like, from day one, the Trump administration and the GOP have been on the job, you know, making sure that Americans had everything they need to fight the virus. There's absolutely no reason that anyone should be fearful. We're not in the same place we were in March. No, we're not. And remember, this is a, you know, it was amazing. Remember when the president shut down uh, travel from China? He was called everything in the book, you know, xenophobic. He was, it was awful. But yet what he did actually help save lives because China was not being honest with the, with the world at that point. And they were letting people get on planes who were sick. And I think that's something that the president is, is always fought an uphill battle with the liberal media. Look, as ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, we were at ground zero for the for the despised Trump movement. I mean, everything that we did had to do with trying to get the president, whether it was from, you know, coronavirus to Mueller report to, to you name it, we did it. And so what I saw in, in the left is this, this inordinate uh, obsession with getting at this president. And COVID virus has sort of uh, filled that. So what's sad is we've politicized this issue of masks. We've politicized the opening back up. We've politicized, you know, even now we're talking about college football. I mean, this is, where are we at in this society? Remember, there was a lot of deaths with SARS. There was a lot of deaths with other things and, and issues over the past, you know, 20 to 30 years. But yet we didn't shut down the economy like we are now. And that's got to stop because I'll tell you a sad part of this. It's an underhidden part. Uh, I spoke to some folks in my hometown just the other day and found out that in several of our long-term care facilities, our, our senior living centers, there's been three known, uh, three known suicides in the last few weeks uh, by senior citizens who have just found the loneliness too much to bear. Think about this. These are 70, 80-year-old people who live through wars, who live through depressions, who live through recessions who now have found that the loneliness and the closing in of our economy and our people, so they can't see their families, they can't see other people, they can't do related activities, are finding that life is not worth living. When we get to a point in our society like that, we've got to actually begin to say, have we went too far in what we're doing in the name of protection so that we're uh, actually hurting ourselves? And there seems to be like a double standard, like you cannot reopen churches, but people riding the streets, I mean, that's a, a constitutional right. People should yeah. just... The liberals, in the way they've managed COVID-19, makes absolutely no medical sense. You could have a church the size of a football stadium that could accommodate social distancing, but you can't have that open. But at the same time, you know, you know thousands of people rioting in the streets 
that's somehow protected by the Constitution. It's it's ridiculous, you know. And I think part of what you said is just feeding into it. There, there was already a lot of, like, tension in our society, but the fact that we've been quarantined for almost, what, seven months now? Yeah. I think it's just making it worse, personally. I would, I would agree with you. I think it is making it worse because we've never had a time for any of our lives. No one in, our, in this country can ever remember a time in which we've done this. And especially you think of New York City, you think of New York, you think of some of the California towns, you think of some of the others in Michigan and others where they've been shut down the entire time. Oregon, where Portland right now is burning 70 something days, almost 80 something days straight. Oregon's governor in March and back in April and May continued to keep the, the, the state shut down up until the midsummer for no apparent reason. I mean, they were the 40, at that point, I think we're in the like 45th or 46th in amount of cases in the country. They had very few cases, but yet the governor was keeping a, a state in which has a lot of outdoors and everything else actually shut down. It does show this overreaction, which I believe now has become a political overreaction. Uh, to this uh, virus, but it's, it's actually affecting us in, in ways that uh, I think are going to be long-term impacts. You talk about schools, you talk about people's mental health, you talk about people who have been shut in in, in bad environments. These are things that we're not going to recover from. One of our, it, very quickly, one of the people that uh, I trust a lot as a superintendent of one of our local schools talked about the fact that if you have a child who already has uh, uh, economic uh, problems or or has a year in which they don't get a good educate uh, a good completed year of education. It takes almost three years to recover. Well, we did have we just had one of those, and now we're heading into possibly another one. Statistics show that the person, the child who needs the instruction the most, may not ever recover from this loss of time without a teacher and an education. What is that going to tell us as we go forward in the future? Um, as we find these kids who are you know five and ten years from now who are having to overcome this overzealous approach to the way we're taking it. I completely agree with what your associate said. I work in education, you know, and you know I have worked mostly with students that fall in that sort of in-between where they're either going to succeed or they're going to fail. Yep. Those are where, where most of my experience lies. And I'll tell you, forget a year. You get a student like that that's making progress and then their education gets stunted. Within three weeks, within a month, they'll be right back where they were. You put them through a year, yeah. it's going to take them the majority of their adult life to gain the skills. Not necessarily just because they lost the momentum. They'll lose the confidence they had in the skills when they start having trouble because they no longer have access to quality instruction. You know, it's a lot different. I've taught online. I've taught in the classroom. It's a lot different teaching online than it is teaching in a classroom. And even with the most advanced technology at your disposal, you're never going to get the same quality of instruction as you would inside a classroom because those students you're talking about don't need to hear someone speaking on the other end of the screen. They need someone sitting right next to them, helping them work it out. Yeah, you, you've hit it perfectly. My wife uh, just retired. She was a COVID retirement. It was She was planning on retiring last uh, May after 30 years in the classroom in elementary education. 
And uh, it was just a crazy time that she all of a sudden on March 13th, the kids left. She never thought she she thought they'd be back in a couple of weeks and they never came back to school. And she made a comment that's sort of similar to what you just said. That in-person instruction, what you miss is a kid sitting there. There's two things. Uh, one is you miss the kid sitting there in math. She taught math and science. And that, that, that sort of bewildered look when the child, the teacher can look in the child's eyes when they're doing a problem and they look up and they say, and you can just see that they don't get it, that there's, there's something missing. And that's what a teacher can do in a room. They can see what's going on and actually interact. And then if you don't believe that, the, that, that time off from a classroom has an effect, then why is it that every year in elementary school in particular and others, they spend the first two to three weeks back from summer recess going back over what they had just learned the previous year because uh, they're having to reinforce what they had not been doing for six to eight weeks? No, you're, you know, your wife is entirely correct. You know, and there's something you know, in education that's called student rapport. You know, there are cues a student will tell a teacher just by looking, like your your wife said, that you cannot see online in the classroom. And those same students that are having difficulty are not going to send a private message to the teacher for help if you're using an online platform. Oh, I agree. Yeah. They well, may never she... speak to the teacher at all. Oh, my wife had to actually end up teaching. They did Zoom classes for the last six weeks of, of school. And they did like two or three week, two day, days a week. She had 60 kids roughly that she saw in a normal classroom environment, you know, rotating through. Uh, she had, uh, at best, she would have 25 to maybe 30 actually get on the Zoom call. Uh, the other kids would just do the homework or when it, so you really wonder who's doing the work to start with. But she didn't even have interaction with some of the kids, you know, that were supposed to be on the call. So yeah, it's a problem. And yeah, I think that's gonna become a bigger issue as we go forward, I think it's going to be an interesting issue, though. I think there's an opportunity here as well, especially among college and university settings, which there's been a talk about our cost of, of going to college and cost of secondary education, the debt loads and things like that. I think now our university systems are going to have to start reevaluating with all this move toward online learning and others. That is not the same cost as an in-person classroom. And, and I think you can't have it both ways. You can't trump the virtue of of having online learning and, and paying for that, and then also saying uh, uh, in-person learning, and then saying, well, we can get by with online learning here if we're having to do it through COVID or whatever, but still charging the same amount of money. I think these are, as as we as adults and, and young adults get older, online learning is, is a possibility more and more, but you can't separate the K through five, especially, and especially the K through one and two when they're learning to read. You can't learn to read over an internet phone call. You just can't do it. I would agree. I mean, uh, I interestingly enough, I that's one of the subjects that I used to teach was uh, reading English language arts. Yeah. You know, for K through 12 students. And I I did it all online. Our, our program was entirely online. And it's difficult. It's difficult, not just because you don't have any interaction with the students, but because there's too many distractions online. Like, I caught one of my students playing uh, some sort of video game <laughs> online while studying in the science lab. You know, yep. it, it just doesn't work. There's too many distractions. And you're right. You, know, you could Google, if you really wanted to, the answers to half of the test questions if you're doing an online exam that doesn't have software that locks out the students. That's right. 
It does. Yeah, so I think that's going to be one of the things we move forward is, is businesses come back up, you know, and, and education comes back up. It's getting back to work. You talked about our economy in Georgia. The one thing that we are having effect is I understood we, we I complained about it. We tried to get it changed in the earlier version of the relief packages because it was the uh, enhanced unemployment. Um, but what we're seeing now is actually playing true to what we said would happen back in March and April. And that was that there's a disincentive to work. And it's just like in education, not having the kids back is going to be a price. Right now, our business is talking about from an economic standpoint, by not being able to get workers back into the system, it's slowing down our economy and slowing down our recovery. Are there uh, specific trades or businesses that are struggling more than others in Georgia as reopening is taking place? Yeah, our our uh, what's recovering the most is, like I said, are is your is your restaurants, your your what I call your hospitality, more your hospitality industries. Um, Georgia's been better than most, especially our more rural parts of our state where we have a lot of tra- tourism and travel the mountains in which I live, the beaches have done okay, but with the restrictions of uh, limited capacities and things like that, they have, they've hurt most. Restaurants in many areas, especially around Atlanta, the cities uh, have been the hardest hit uh, as we go forward. And so those hotels is another one. Uh, you think about hotels, people don't think about those. They think about hotels. Most people, unless they're business travelers, which I've done and you may have as well, you don't think of hotels as the business side. You think of it as going somewhere on vacation. You go stay in a hotel at the beach. You go stay in a hotel you know, somewhere and you're in some more of a, a, a leisure activity. But there's a lot of our hotels that were set up in, in, in or right around a business park or a business community. And those hotels are still at 10 and 15% occupancy. Those are some of the industries that I, I'm really concerned we may lose and not get back for a, a long time. Let's move from education and economics. You know, me and you were talking earlier before we started the call about a civil society and how COVID-19 and the pandemic is affecting that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little more about that. Yeah, I think one of the things we're seeing right now is there's been an overtaking. And I think part of it is this idea that we've been shut in for so long. And, you know, you brought up religious liberties and, and a few minutes ago and in this idea of churches. I think they fit hand in hand. Why is it that I've had to fight a great deal against on religious uh, freedom issues, especially in the military, because I'm still a part of the military, in which there was an, an order sent out from the Navy uh, about a month and a half ago. It was rescinded fairly quickly after we found out. that said you could go to off-campus or off-base sites to protest or have meetings or do stuff in people's home, but you couldn't go to an off-site church. And it's like, whoa, you, you're telling me you can go riot or you, know, you can go protest, but you can't go to church. Um, and I think what's happening is, is people were shut up for so long and now they're using, you know, the very tragic death of, of Mr. Floyd and others to get back out and and create a, a situation in which we see anarchy. We see this going on and it's being fueled by a liberal notion that the police are the problem. Societal controls are not the problem. We have a civil society that is functioned for 200 plus years by existence in which we do have protest against what we believe is right or wrong in our country, but it's done within the bonds of, of the, the law. We can't have anarchy taking hold in our streets and it not affect our economy and not affect our way of life and make and it, it builds on what we've talked about now. And that is this fear factor that we see from the COVID virus, but now we're seeing the fear factor of actually seeing it in our, our streets right now. I would agree. I think, though, too, when you look at religion, especially in our society, 
religion sort of is one of those things that no matter what religion you adhere to, it 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 places you in firmly convicted in a specific set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. That becomes your code of ethics. Mm -hmm. And when you look at a lot of what you know liberals in our society are pushing for, they're pushing for systems of ethics based around their ideology. So mm -hmm. if there's a free if you have free access to religious services during COVID-19, regardless of your religious persuasion, you are going to take comfort in that, your own beliefs. You're going to develop your own ideas about COVID-19 based off those beliefs and ethics. And if you're listening to the person from the, you know, the pulpit, you're not going to be listening to the person on the news, the people who call you to riot. Right. Oh, yeah, and, and I think that's very important. You know, not only does the, the, your faith-based system give you your, your sense of moral ethics, your sense of, of a community, it's also a community sense, too. And you're connected to others of like minds and community, and that's why you go to uh, your your church, your synagogue, your mosque, whatever you, you go to. You, there's a community feel there that I think is very important to who we are in our psyche, how we were created. Um, but remember, a, a liberal vision of everybody does what is right in their own eyes leads to a constantly changing metric of what is right and what is wrong. And there are moral rights and moral wrongs, and, and what we, and that they can even transcend different religions. But, <laughs> but excuse me, what we're seeing right now is, is a society in which we want to be able to go out and do whatever I want to do. It's about me. And um, when you have that, you're going to create uh, turmoil because what I may believe is right and what is a social norm is is not when everybody can do whatever they want to do, and and we've seen that before when you when you go into issues of life and issues of of, of you know the things that we deal with. So I believe it's all tied in together uh, that you're seeing this unrest, you're seeing this uh, civil that is being fostered by those who don't want to be uh, they they want to do whatever they feel is right, and they'll make it up in their own mind as they go. Well, we are about at our time. I want to give you final thoughts, and then please tell our audience where they can find you on social media and support you. Well, thank you so much. It's been great talking with you now. We've covered a lot of things about our country. The best thing about it is I'm optimistic about the future. I think we will come through what we've talked about. We will get our schools open back up. We will get our economy going. We will see the end of this, this pandemic, and we're going to be stronger if we stick together and if we remember the values that got us there to start with, our, our economy, our free market economy, our values, our people. Um, we're running uh, this race because we want to continue those conservative values, and we can do that here in the state of Georgia. I would love to have people get involved in our campaign. They can go to DougForGeorgia.com, DougForGeorgia.com, and they can sign up. Uh, if they can help us with finances, we'd love if there's a donate button. If they can help us with, if they're in Georgia, they want to help us uh, with signs or coming to events. But also, anybody in the country who hears this, if they want to be a part of our campaign and help us, if they see it and they like what they hear, they can actually also make phone calls from wherever they're at in the country and help us uh, in this campaign as we go forward. But that's at DougForGeorgia.com. Okay, well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thank you for coming, Doug. And everyone, so have a great evening. Stay tuned for our next episode of RNHA News Radio.